Hello, you're listening to the Europe in the World podcast. I'm Kevin LaRue, and I'm here today with Dr. Alicia Verticelli, who is a visiting lecturer at Northeastern University. Her research mainly focuses on migration and borders. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Yes, we're glad to have you. Uh, is there anything else you'd like to tell the audience about your background? Uh, yeah, sure. So uh, you introduced me really well. I'm a visiting lecturer at Northeastern University. Uh, I've done research on specifically EU policies uh, on migration and borders and the way they affect migrants um, on the move, um, particularly in the central Mediterranean. And my research background also focuses on refugee communities in the Middle East and Middle East politics. Great. Well, we had a few questions to uh, get started with. Uh, and so I wanted to ask, uh, what do you feel is the biggest challenge the EU is facing right now when it comes to migration? Yeah, I mean, there are many challenges that the EU is facing um, regarding migration. But I would um, say that the biggest challenges are um, intangible in a way, and mostly reputational and moral costs. Um, let me explain what I mean by that. Um, What's been happening in the EU is really a process of securitization of migration. And by securitization, I mean basically framing migration as a security issue, right? That's been going on for decades, but it's uh, increased substantially after the 2014, 2015 so-called migration crisis. Um, and the EU um, is also widely considered a global norm setter, a champion of human rights, um, and has uh, set precedent for uh, very high aspirations in its design as a supranational organization, but also in the way it's, um, it's designed and implemented its fundamental values and the human rights at an even higher level than nation states and other international organizations. Um, so the problem that we're seeing in Europe is that with some of the failures to address the crisis and the challenges that came with the influx of asylum seekers in 2014 and 2015, but also with the double standard that many are underlining today with the different approach um, in the current crisis with Ukrainians on the move. Um, kind of this double standard coupled with the rise of populism and especially right-wing nationalism uh, in many countries in the EU, um, that's really placed migration firmly in the realm of security, uh, but also it's ha it's having and it will have even more um, reputational and moral costs for the EU. Um, this is, uh, of course, just a part of the issue because securitization itself also has material consequences that are detrimental. In particular, I've done actually um, research on what I call the vicious cycle of securitization. The basic idea of the vicious cycle is that once you implement policies that are based on this very notion that mobility is a security issue, and also at the same time, you cut off or you decrease and you, and you fail to create pathways for legal entry, uh, so pathways for legal economic migration, right, um, old... Um, seasonal workers schemes or uh, guest worker schemes were discontinued for the most part, in partly related to recessions that were going on in the, in the EU, in the Eurozone. Um, but also on the other hand, uh, the fail failure to create up until recently legal pathways for asylum 
right? basically forces uh, people on the move to, to go through irregular routes um, and to face situations at the border in, that are highly mit- militarized. This includes uh, both national authorities, but also increasingly EU, um, EU agents that are very active at the border, even beyond the border in the process of that many have underlined of externalization of borders. So there's EU actors or EU funded actors uh, in the heart of Africa and the Middle East uh, trying to prevent mobility from reaching the EU external border. And then there's Frontex alongside uh, national coast guards at sea or at key uh, border points and crossings. So the border really takes different different um, forms and different contexts, uh, increasingly militarized and securitized. And this very experience at the border, um, uh, highly routinized, highly militarized or filtering of lack of really assessment uh, on an individual basis of a rejected or accepted based on nationality and all of these <clears throat> all of these other elements that really came out of the European agenda on migration 2015. Um, and related policies um, in the long term, in the medium and long term, will actually create more insecurity. And therefore, that's the vicious cycle of, in the name of security, actually creating a situation in which more people become irregular or are irregularized um, and, and therefore have mistrust in the authorities. And my interviews with many migrants and refugees confirmed this uh, that experiences have a high impact on the level of trust you will have or reliance you will have on authorities in the host country. And therefore, you basically create a security issue by defining migration as a security issue. Um, And this, of course, um, has been reflected in the rhetoric of rising right wing politicians in many member states. You know, Italy is just the latest example. Uh, but also important countries like France and Germany, even though they haven't won, like in Italy, you know, they, they still play important roles and they've been on the rise. Um, that they paint a picture of this constant state of crisis, uh, constant state of emergency, of security threat, uh, of, you know, people on the move as threats or burdens at best, right? Economic burdens or security threats. Um, so this, of course, and this invasion, right? High numbers, um, always underlined, well, this is in contrast with a reality in which actually, well, the vast majority of migration in Europe happens to be irregular migration, right? Uh, often, you know, the, the, the vast majority of people that are foreign born are of Euro- European origin. Um, and then um, asylum as a category, right, of residence permits is just a fraction of the total people that are in EU member states, right? About, I would say about 9% of resident permits are on the basis of asylum. So the issue of asylum itself is not as prominent as people would like to think, even though most irregular migrants happen to be in the end asylum seekers because that's their only way of entering, right? With the discontinuation of many other uh, legal pathways. Um, You said 9%. Nine, yeah. Wow, that is surprising. Yeah. And also uh, the EU as a whole, compared to other developed countries in the global north, has a relatively low percentage of foreign-born population, about 8% versus other countries that have much higher percentages, uh, such as the US, but even Canada, or if you go to countries such as Singapore, where about half half the population is foreign-born, of course. Um, 
Wow. So just, yeah. I, I was just wondering, do, do mm -hmm. you feel that um, the EU is in many ways having trouble meeting this goal that they have of advancing human rights, at least in the ter in terms of immigration? Yes, I would say so. And this comes to a great cost to, as I said earlier, to the EU as a moral norm setter and a global norm setter in that in that realm. Um, and I think, you know, Europe often has been really advancing in moments of crisis, but migration has, pr has proven to be kind of an exception to this case because it's really highlighted um, a lot of the political tension between member states and the different, the differential effects that this, uh, this perceived or portrayed or real crisis had on different member states. Um, and of course, I mean, just to mention the other facet of what I was just saying earlier, uh, compared to countries that are neighboring crises, such as, you know, talking about 2014, 2015, if we look at neighboring countries of, uh, of conflicts um, that caused that, that, that wave of, of, of asylum seekers, uh, the number of people that, that made it to Europe that created that unprecedented crisis and threat um, pales in comparison of what less developed countries had to deal with in the in that neighborhood with you know just think that a country a tiny country like lebanon that has been under um, a very serious political and economic crisis and hyperinflation and um in there basically one in four is a refugee in the population of lebanon so definitely the eu can do better uh and 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 the, even the concept of crisis has been overblown and we know that the eu can 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 do better because it's been doing better now with the current crisis and Ukrainians. Well, in that realm, I was wondering, what would you say is the biggest item that the EU can improve on when accepting refugees, especially during these crises that you mentioned? Because obviously uh, there are a lot of countries that are uh, at least relatively close to the EU that um, might be struggling with a crisis or with uh, economic uncertainty or other issues. Right. I mean, I think... So a couple of things on the concept of crisis, right? So crisis itself, um, and this is what a lot of us in academia claim, have been claiming for a while, uh, are uh, socially constructed, right? So there is a decision that's, that's made that a situation is defined as a crisis. And what that does, it really opens up an opportunity for quick decision-making, right? So... That's been key in understanding the advancement of the EU, because the process through which the EU makes, um, kind of innovates and grows uh, is quite cumbersome and slow and gradual in normal times. But then there are really quick advancements, um, important advan advancements in moments of crisis. Right? Uh, you know, people often bring up the example of the financial crisis, the Eurozone crisis. That led to very substantial um, growth in EU as an as in institutional strength and capacity uh, and increased solidarity, right? Um, so when faced with a crisis, especially a crisis, and this is important, that threatens member states, is perceived to threaten member states uh, similarly, Right? So a collective crisis can lead to actually a way that advances the EU and the EU project. Right? Uh, but other crises are not as, um, are different, right? Uh, especially the migration crisis or what has been portrayed as a migration crisis, right? Really underline the differences, right? Between different member states. 
So you had, for example, in 2014, 2015, you had the Visegrad group that was really um, strongly and remains uh, with some refugees, right? Strongly against any resettlement schemes or really about uh, anyone coming into the EU, right? Uh, Countries in Southern Europe, Italy, Greece, Spain, that are at the so-called front lines of the crisis that see the large influx of asylum seekers um, that have certain um, complaints, right, of a lack of solidarity, of how outdated the Dublin system is, where they have to process all the asylum applications, while countries that where um, asylum seekers end up going, right, complain that, well, countries on the front line are not respecting the rules and they're letting people go and therefore we need st- stronger external borders and procedures in these countries. So there's different priorities uh, that really um, come and remain. So this basic political fundamental crisis hasn't been resolved. Um, but what, what's important to understand, and that's where, uh, I guess, where the EU can really improve, well, ideally, right, and that's something that came up over and over again in my research on the ground, is that what really makes a difference is to not force people to go through the dangerous routes uh, of irregular migration, rely on smugglers and sometimes traffickers, um, and potentially die en route, um, and go through you know months of, of, of travel, because before reaching Europe, people have to go through many different uh, countries and deserts and detention centers and smugglers and facilitators. Um, so avoiding all of that and creating real legal pathways that are institutionalized um, for migration and mobility uh, with the acknowledgement that migration can't be stopped, right? It's a human condition that has always existed. So to a certain extent, you can try and deter that, that as the EU has been doing through the external externalization of borders and the securitization of migration but in the end you know push factors are not stopping not only that but they're potentially increasing with the current crisis that we see political instability climate change right people are not going to stop moving and looking for a better life or for safety Uh, so there's really a need to institutionalize legal pathways not just a temporary solution for certain lucky refugees um such as has been done recently, but as a more kind of general institutionalized way of, of, of managing the issue of migration and asylum. Yeah, I mean, it's important to remember that, you know, when people are fleeing, uh, you know, a crisis or violence or whatever it is, uh, they're often at their most vulnerable. Uh, so yeah, that's definitely a very good point. Um, one thing I want to bring up is that, um uh, during the Syrian refugee crisis, we saw that some countries in the EU, uh, such as Hungary and Poland, actually took in very few asylum seekers. Uh, but since the outbreak of the war in Ukraine, there's been a little bit of, uh, of a reverse in some ways. And we've seen that some of these countries have actually begun taking in significantly more refugees. And so I want to ask, how has the crisis in Ukraine affected EU migration policy, if at all? And, and what can we learn from this sort of uneven admission of migrants that I, I think you had started to, to bring up earlier. Yeah, I mean, that's exactly what I was trying to allude to <clears throat> in, the, in that double standard. And in fact, <clears throat> and, in, and the very fact that the EU could come up with such um, a scheme for the, you know, the temporary um, welcoming of and, and programs that are being implemented across different member states, including, uh, as you mentioned, 
those of the Visegrad group that were so staunchly and remain so staunchly against any other refugee admission, including some refugees from the Ukraine, the, the Roma population, uh, trying to 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 do the same thing that uh, other Ukrainians are doing, are being subjected to discrimination um, to this day. And to this day, the countries that you mentioned are not admitting other refugees coming from other crises. Um, so there's there's definitely an argument to be made that uh, this has highlighted a double standard. Um, you know, on the flip side of that, it is true that um, countries that are in the neighborhood of a crisis, and in this case, this happened to be many European countries, right, are often the first to respond to a crisis, right? So the same way that I uh, highlighted how during the Syrian crisis, the neighboring countries really took the toll, and that's that's um, obvious to assume that for the Ukraine, the EU will take a more active role. Uh, nevertheless, in terms of coming up with when you find people at your border in escaping a situation of violence, um, uh, the fact that such a different response um, was put in place is definitely telling. Um, so in terms of long-term change, I think we're starting to see a difference in this course because many people are pointing out this double standard. Uh, in terms of actual policies or decision-making, I don't see right now any political willingness to create a more formal or institutionalized mechanism for um, for this kind of uh, welcoming uh, of refugees. So I'm, to date, uh, still lacking. I see. Okay. Well, if we pivot a little bit to a different topic, I was wondering, uh, the EU is often criticized for uh, the influence of unelected officials in formal decision-making. And so I want to know uh, to what extent uh, are the EU's current immigration laws sort of a result of decision-making from governing bodies that aren't directly elected? Right. I mean, this has been a long-standing um, criticism of the EU as a supranational institution um, and more generally uh, of international organizations, right? We hear the same critiques um, to international organizations or international financial institutions such as the World Bank or the IMF that are implementing programs and maybe not being you know, democratically accountable in the way we normally would expect to. Uh, with the EU, uh, also the criticism has been there uh, from the beginning, especially for the commission. Right? Um, and, and this has been really picked up by a lot of uh, nationalist politicians in that they see or they portray the EU as this kind of bureaucratic monster right? that takes decisions uh, without the accountability of the people. So that's that's something that really started with the financial crisis, um, with the Eurozone crisis, and, and, and it's something that remained in the consciousness of people. Um, so we see this tendency, on the one hand, of portraying the EU as the champion of democracy, of human rights, of the counter, uh, you know, the flip coin of rising right-wing populism for, you know, but on the other hand, we also see the EU as a securitizing actor and also the EU as um, as having a problem of a democratic deficit. And specifically, this is um, beyond the discourse around it, right? This is, this is an issue that... Um, that has real effects on the ground. I'll give you an example from, um, from some of my own work, right? Because um, at some point I was really interested in investigating uh, the design phase of some of those policies that were passed uh, in response to the 2015 crisis, um, namely the European agenda on migration, but then also the effects that these had at the border. And so I started by talking to people in Brussels and something like, uh, 
um, what is known as the hotspot approach, for example, that basically established a series of um, centers and, and, and coordination between nation state authorities, Frontex, Europol, and Eurojust, right, to quickly filter, identify, sort um, irregular migrants at arrival, right, sometimes uh, at sea already, uh, and, and other times in these um, detention-like centers or facilities, uh, they were repurposed to become basically hotspots. This was in Italy and Greece. Right? There's still four functioning hotspots in Italy, uh, in the Lampedusa Island, right in the south, and then others in Sicily and one in Apulia, uh, and others in Greece in the island. So this really came out of one, I won't, you know, for anonymity, I won't mention the name, but one of my interviewees in the European Commission um, who, again, taking the advantage of the moment of emergency and crisis, right, really pushed for this innovation. Uh, and that brought about, and also I spoke with the implementers of this hotspots approach, this EU agents on the ground, for example, in Sicily, for my specific research, they were tasked with, in the case of Italy, for example, the issue was these migrants are not being fingerprinted right back uh, then. Uh, and if they're not being fingerprinted, we can't implement the Dublin system. We can't send them back because we have no trace of them. And the Italian authorities, they had kind of, you know, they would sometimes turn a blind eye uh, and say, okay, we don't, we're overburdened. And so it's just fair that if there are no resettlement policies, that some of these migrants are free to just go on with their lives and go to other EU member states. Um, well, after the implementation of the hotspot approach, which really was not, um, for the large part, a democratic process, right? Um, it really came out of the EU Commission, quickly implemented, highly effective. Um, in, in a context such as Italy, the fingerprinting uh, went to cover virtually everybody, despite a few hiccups, right? Some protests, a hotspot was set on fire at some point uh, because of migrant protests against fingerprinting because they knew that, you know, they wanted to leave Italy and not be trapped there. Um, but then, um, yeah, largely very effective. So sometimes um, that's the reality of things. So what you're saying is that uh, there can often be a, quite a different level of implementation of uh, migration policy in different EU countries. Yeah, there can definitely be different levels of implementation, uh, but then sometimes these crises are taken as opportunities to kind of increase the presence of the EU. And that was the case with the hotspot approach. So from differential application of the regulations to more uniform and more presence of EU authorities at the border alongside national authorities. That's interesting. That's something that I think has come up in some of the other, other interviews so far, uh, that in times of crisis... Uh, the EU does tend to grow power. Uh, so it's kind of interesting to hear that. Um, I know that you have somewhat limited time today. So there was uh, one question I kind of wanted to finish on. I wanted to ask uh, if you believe the current system uh, is stable uh, in the EU or if we should expect changes to the immigration system to occur in the next few years. I know you kind of touched on this earlier, but I want to hear a little bit more uh, of what you had to say on that. Yeah, of course. I mean, whether the current system is stable, um, I don't think it's stable. And for the simple reason that um, it's kind of blind to what's unavoidable. Uh, and what I mentioned earlier is that mobility is not going to stop. Mobility into the EU is not going to stop. 
uh, for a number of very simple basic reasons. Uh, well, the, the first one is economic, right? Sometimes uh, to follow mobility, you just have to look at, um, you know, what are what is supply and demand and where are people going to look for employment? Even in terms of forced migration, right? Forced migrants have to make some very similar decisions to so-called economic migrants because in the end they have to feed their families. Um, so some explanations are economic and with the rising inequalities globally, this is not going to stop. Climate change is a big factor that is already starting to impact a lot of these crises we see in the neighborhood of the EU. And that's only going to increase um, in terms of water scarcity, but also fueling conflicts in the neighborhood, um, you know, decreased um, uh, capacity, uh, you know, conflicts over resources, all of these things are already happening and indirectly affecting a lot of conflicts and, and problems we see, and they're only going to increase political instability. Um, and even the very idea, right, that is pushed sometimes that we should help them in their own countries, right, through development aid, that's sometimes conditional to uh, enforcing uh, migration controls. And basically, we pay for development to prevent migration. That's a false assumption because, you know, studies have shown over and over again that the, the relationship between development and migration is not linear. And actually, a country that's developing will produce more migrants for a quite long period of time until until it doesn't. Uh, and in fact, the countries that produce the most migrants and refugees are not the poorest countries. Uh, Yemen has been the worst humanitarian crisis in the world uh, for years, and yet we don't see that many Yemeni refugees because they simply don't have the money to leave their homes. Uh, there's a lot of IDPs, um, but they can't make it. And, you know, and Yemen and Somalia keep swapping refugees between each other and and you know and 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 obviously Somalia can't protect Somalis, let alone Yemenis, and vice versa. Uh, but that's as far as they can go. Um, so so for for these reasons, I see that um, that trying to stop migration or trying to prevent migration is a blind kind of approach. So no, I don't think the current system is stable and I think that changes will have to happen. Now the timeline uh, and the direction uh, we will have to see with the current leadership in a lot of European member states um, that it's going to take a while to realize this. Mm, do you think that might take another crisis even for us to see changes or are you less optimistic about that? Uh, it might be, you know, in the past, as, as I mentioned, you know, the, the EU has been advancing through crises. I think, um, you know, a lot, a lot of the, of, of, of the change has to happen. Um, also at the level of, of nation states as well as the EU. Because while you know, we saw the rise of right-wing populism, we also saw the EU uh, you know, pushing back uh, with words, but also implementing policies in line with, with this rhetoric of securitization and externalization. So to see a reversal of that, we have to see a change in elites in nation states, a change in public opinion, um, and in narratives around this. And, and these three are really connected to, to each other. So, Well, thank you very much for uh, sitting down with me today. Uh, we really appreciate it. And I'm sure our audience also appreciates uh, you sharing your, uh, your expertise with everyone. Is there anything you'd like to uh, tell our audience about 
uh, what you're doing lately, like anything that you're working on or anything like that that you think might be interesting? Yeah, of course. So, um, well, first, thank you so much for having me. This was great. Um, yeah, lately I've been working actually on um, investigating a little closer uh, the work that I've done uh, with this very limited initiative in Italy of humanitarian visas. So that's exactly what I was talking about in terms of creating legal pathways for asylum. That's something that's been implemented with a very limited program uh, sponsored by some faith-based organizations in Italy. And it's proven to be quite successful. So what I'm trying to do is from a policy perspective to see um, you know, what's the potential of that to kind of break the vicious cycle of securitization and create a virtual cycle of desecuritization and uh, whether there's any potential to expand something like that um, at, a, at a national or maybe EU level. Um, so that's that's what, uh, what's keeping me busy these days. <laughs> wow, well, that's exciting stuff. Well, thank you again uh, so much for sitting down with us. Uh, this has been great talking with you. Thank you for listening to the Europe and the World podcast. We hope you enjoyed learning more about migration and borders in the EU.